Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Barry, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. You're off the work or teaching right now, and looks like we're we're in summertime. That's that's exciting. Yeah, it just started. So uh got out Friday, and here it is Monday, and already working with Robbie now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, did you at least plan one day for kayaking? Everyone plans like one day to do something. Yeah, well, actually, we'll be doing quite a bit of that because we go up to Michigan. My, I have a bunch of family that lives in Michigan sometime this summer and so we do that and and uh trust me i won't be hurting for and then we go to east tennessee i live in tennessee so we go to east tennessee and do tubing that's a tradition around here so but before i get to all the fun stuff robbie i have to do all the chores that my wife has written down in a list around the house so that'll take me a month everyone's got a little bit of chores but i got a chore for you and i think it's going to be the conversation of the show i wanted to talk about the deep state mostly because whenever i mention the word deep state people that know a little bit about the intelligence communities or things that happened in history they kind of acknowledge it and accept and go yeah deep state's real but then others and most of the public i feel like whenever you mention the word deep state it gets lumped into the conspiracy realm and i wanted to get your idea of what you would call the deep state because for me i would probably look more closely at our intelligence agencies i mean we have more than the cia the fbi the nsa the dod but there's a bunch of little acronym things that i could not tell you for the life of me what they actually do or what i mean i don't even know the extent of what the cia is capable of so i'm curious to your thoughts on what the deep state is okay the deep state is an amalgamation of three different entities you have the corporate entity you have the military and intelligence entity and then you have the government the agencies and the politicians and when you combine those three together those three entities they work in lockstep and form what we oftentimes refer to as a shadow government, which is unelected, it's unaccountable, and it's really driven, uh, I hope to be able to show today that it's really driven by the profit motive. It's driven by money. And uh, so everything, they work together. Uh, if the corporate entity deems this uh, policy initiative in their interest, then they donate to the right politicians and those politicians get elected. And then those politicians are beholden to those corporate interests to do what they were paid. You know, that, that's how they got into their office. So they have to pay back uh, those campaign contributions. And then in order to enforce some of these policies, for example, if the corporation wants to go into a third world country and take resources, those third world countries are not going to accept that uh, willingly. So we're going to have to use our military and our intelligence to go in there and enforce those policies. So they work together, the three. And again, it's in the shadows. And when we vote for politicians, we vote for what they're telling us they're going to support. Uh, but what we don't realize is who is supporting them. And that is who they're really beholden to because it costs so much to run for office. They can't, if it comes down to, to uh, supporting what Robbie wants versus as a, uh, as a constituent versus what the, say, uh, a, a big oil company wants, they're going to go with the oil company every time because the oil company donated millions of dollars to their campaign and to their agencies and to their causes. And you probably didn't. 
So it comes down to money. If I mean, if, if there's something I want to just get rid of all the seagulls ever, just, just <laughs> terminate them all off the planet. I don't think we need them really anymore. But my knowledge, and I want to get your perspective of how you even came across the deep state and how did you first start kind of learning about it? Was that from the Watergate stuff? Because I mean, everything you've said so far, that it, the way you've explained it is I think a lot of people can get to that page because you can just look to history. I mean, look at Castro wanting to kick everybody out of Cuba. He's trying to reclaim Cuba. Well, look who's involved in there. America's involved over there. That's not rationalizing anything about Castro. It's just saying that there's look in Latin America. Latin America is the same exact thing. Nicaragua, all these places that the U.S. and the intelligence services have been involved in doing some covert operations and things of that sort. So when they're getting kicked out and other people are starting to be aware that these people are now encroaching onto our property or our land and they're, they're starting to make moves in their own business decisions, it's just capitalism. It's another name for capitalism. And then you can point it back to the old Robin Williams joke where he says, I wish politicians were kind of like NASCAR drivers where they had to wear the person that was sponsoring them on their uniform. Yeah, there's a a long lingering stereotype of like this kind of business. Everything is incentivized by like a deeper agenda, which is just business interests and profit motives. And I think we've been seeing that go for a long time. And I've recently became interested in the whole deep state talk because I realized how involved into everything. I think the reason why we think of deep state as like this. I mean, obviously, Bohemian Grove and all that stuff we have evidence on, but I think the movies also made it this kind of conspiracy thing. They made it seem really, really Hollywood to the point where now the public has a disconnect. Whenever you say something like deep state, people just think, oh, like Michael Shermer, one of the biggest skeptics out there, rolled his eyes at me when I mentioned I believe in a deep state. And I was like, no, just capitalist relationships where the public's interests are now at the back burner and the more profit incentive is on the front. And he goes, well, that makes sense. And I go, yeah. So you looked at me already like, oh, conspiracy talk as soon as I said the word. Well, you know, that's, that's a tactic. It's just like the word conspiracy theorist. That was a, uh, that was an actual tactic used by the CIA to smear people who doubted their conclusions about the JFK assassination. The same thing with the deep state. Uh, it has become a pejorative term. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> but uh, it does have a meaning. And, and essentially what the, what the meaning is, is that it's underneath. It's kind of like the roots of a tree. What we see is the tree. And we take at face value uh, the size of the tree. And we don't even think about what's supporting that tree what's nourishing that tree, what's causing that tree to grow. Like an iceberg, we see the top third of the iceberg. We don't realize two thirds of the iceberg is beneath the surface. So when the word deep is used, it's to talk about what's beneath the surface that is readily apparent to John Q. Public, who isn't researching and and digging, just reading the newspaper and watching the news, and taking at face value what he's being told. And what you start to realize when you do research and dig is that what you're being told is oftentimes a lie and or it's there's an agenda behind it. And so when you want to find out what the agenda is, you have to look at the roots. You have to look at the iceberg that's beneath the surface. That tells you what you're going to see on top of the surface. So, uh, it's a real thing, and it, it it doesn't mean that everything is crooked, that everything is is uh, you know there's there's a suspicious motive to everything. But when we talk about some of the foreign policy decisions that just say are currently being made, there is 
There are underlying reasons why these things are happening, and they go back in time, and they're rooted in history. And uh, I, I think it's I, I got real interested in this because I was studying. Uh, you know, I was way back in in time, and George Washington. This goes all the way back to George Washington when he stepped aside, and, and he left a warning for his successors. Presidents that would come after him, he left in his farewell address a warning about getting involved in foreign entanglements. And right away, you see John Adams, president number two, getting pressured to involve America in the French Revolution. And he's getting pressure from everybody, all sides. And there was, you know, some good reasons to get involved. You know, the French had helped us when we fought our war of revolution against the British. So the thinking was, it's our turn to help them. But John Adams could not get away from George Washington's warning about foreign entanglements. And he made the decision not to get involved. And it was the correct decision because the French Revolution was not a revolution against an outside threat. The French Revolution was a civil war. And he understood that. And if we had gotten involved as a young, fledgling country at our weakest point, it would have brought us into that vortex, and we would have been destroyed same time that France was destroyed, basically. It would have destroyed us, and he had the good sense to see that, but it was because of George Washington's warning. Now, John Adams didn't get any credit for it. He lost his reelection campaign. He became the first one-term president in American history, and of course, that's, that's not a badge of honor. So he didn't get rewarded for it in the short term, but in the long term, historians look back and say, you know, John Adams, we didn't have much of a deep state at that time, but he was feeling pressure and there was some military pressure and some business pressure and some diplomatic pressure to go involve ourselves in that war. And he did, he stood up to it, but he did not get rewarded for it. Now, fast forward to 1960. We have another outgoing president who's giving another farewell address, and he warns of a military-industrial complex. His name was Eisenhower, and he was part of the reason we had a military-industrial complex, but he saw it for what it was, and he said, whoever comes after me is going to have to stand up to this because they're going to want to get us into every war. They're, they're going to want us in a permanent state of war because it's good business. And the president who succeeded him was John F. Kennedy. And John F. Kennedy, after a little bit of a faltering start, stood up to the military-industrial complex and, liked John, and resisted our getting into Vietnam, was going to pull everybody out of Vietnam, uh, took away a lot of covert ops away from the, the CIA. And the net result of that was he didn't even get to his second term. He got assassinated. So... I think it's interesting. You look at two presidents who succeeded uh, Washington and Eisenhower, both of whom gave warnings of this deep state. Both of them stood up to the deep state and both of them suffered because of it. Now, Adams was voted out, legitimately voted out. OK, but Kennedy was not going to be voted out. And so the deep state had to resort to extreme measures to take out Kennedy because they could not. Re, uh, they could not count on the American people voting him out like they did Adams. And something changed in America between Adams and Kennedy. 
And in Adam's day, we didn't have this big deep state that could uh, execute a problem. But by Kennedy's time, we did. And not only the means to do it, but the will to do it. And it's, it's really fascinating to look at what happened after two wars, the Civil War and World War II, and how our country changed after those two wars, which brought us to the point uh, where Kennedy could be executed in the way that he was. Do you, do you bring up any of the social climate as well, too? Like, what about the Industrial Revolution? Not the Industrial Yeah, I guess the Industrial Revolution, but more of like the Great Depression era. Like, I mean, when you're already battling if capitalism is going to work, right now it's not working at all. I'd have to think with those types of big institutional, I mean, really foundation-shaking uh, historical moments where I that the deep state has a chance to either expand or, I mean, th they can pull out of it at any moment, really. Uh I just look at the – I mean even with Nixon as well too. I mean I put a lot more weight into that they targeted Nixon to get him out. I don't think he would have been great to be president, but I think even when I spoke to Jeff Shepard and then through my conversations with you, I start looking at Nixon a little bit differently than the rest of either the left or other people start to look at him. They go, oh, are you defending Nixon? I'm like, I'm not defending him, but to say that that guy was involved in Eisenhower's administration and then – he didn't know anything about the deep political stuff that was going on. Of course he did. He had to know what the climate was like. That's why when he lost to Kennedy, there was – I mean, yeah, he said a few statements about Kennedy and things of that sort, but I, it looks more like he's biting his hands a little bit. He's kind of like, ah, I'm just going to wait my time, and that's why he made off-color statements like the Bay of Pigs invasion and a bunch of things of that sort because he already knew what the climate was like. You brought two really good points, Robbie. The first one is – Thank God. No, <laughs> the first one is – uh, the Great Depression and anything where you have a crisis. Uh, a couple of years ago, Obama was caught saying, never let a crisis go to waste. And that's not original with him. Other people have said it. But what that is, what that betrays is this desire to take and manipulate crises to your advantage so that you can get something out of it. For example, after the Civil War, uh, you saw a shift in power from the states to the federal government. Uh, and it was cloaked under, well, you know, this is war. Uh, we have to, you know, we're trying to save the country. And then when the war was over, it's about giving former slaves the rights to vote. And the South wasn't going to do it. The Southern states weren't going to do it. So the federal government has to step in. So the 14th Amendment was passed. And boom, all of a sudden, we have a supremacy of federal government over states, okay? That happened because of a time of crisis in a normal situation that would never have been allowed to happen. Then you fast forward to the, the event you mentioned in the Great Depression. All our best politicians could not solve the Great Depression. Herbert Hoover had a record of success up until the Great Depression, and then it stymied him. He didn't know what to do. And so we voted him out. We brought in FDR. And with FDR, he brought in all the best and brightest of all the business leaders around the country into his cabinet to run our country because we needed to run our country more like a business. It was not succeeding politically. And there was a real danger that America and this experiment in democracy was going to fail. In fact, it was during that era that more people left America and a lot of them head for Russia and different places than they did coming into America. It's the only time in history that more people left America than were coming to America because it seemed like the dream was dead. 
And then you sandwich around the Great Depression, World War I and World War II. Those are three major crises. And in the out after after World War II ended, you're going to see the the this these crises, these three crises in a row are going to uh bring all the power base in America into Washington because A, we've got to run our country so that it can make a profit. We can't have another Great Depression. And B, we have a new threat. And the new threat is the Cold War and the Soviets. And so that's not going to go away anytime soon. And so we need to get on a new footing, a war footing, a permanent war footing to be able to stand up to the expansion or possible expansion of communism. And that became our policy. And so we brought those crises introduced into the American political arena, a new level of power and money that we hadn't seen before. And we accepted it as people because they were crises. And we thought, well, they know better. The elites know better. The second point you brought up, which was interesting, was about uh, Nixon being set up. And I, I just want to touch on that real quick. Uh, you know, uh, there were three pres or three occasions during the Cold War when a president had an opportunity to make peace with the Soviets. And in all three occasions, the first was uh, Eisenhower was going to go to Paris and meet with Nikita Khrushchev in the famous Paris Peace Summit. That got sabotaged because our U-2 plane got shot down and it caused an international incident, which Khrushchev used as a pretext to storm out of the meeting and voila, the Paris Peace Conference didn't happen. The second one was Kennedy when he was he signed the nuclear test ban treaty with Khrushchev and he was going to in a second term. He was already back channeling negotiations with with Khrushchev and they were going to end the Cold War in a second term. But Kennedy got killed. The third one was Nixon. When Nixon was traveling first to China and then second to Russia, and we enter into this period of detente, a very famous relaxation of tensions between the United States and Soviet Union, and the powers that be, the Cold War powers that be, that had a vested interest in the Cold War continuing, eliminated Nixon, like they had eliminated Kennedy, like they had eliminated the Paris Peace Conference. There is a pattern to the way the deep state precluded or foreclosed on any opportunities of peace with the Soviets so we could keep the Cold War going. So that's the tree that we see above the ground. What are the roots beneath the ground that caused them to do that? That's when you get into a study of the deep state and what their motives were. It's, it's fascinating. And, you know, I, I always tell my students this, by the time we get done, with the with the year, they can repeat this verbatim. They've heard it so many times from me. It always goes back to money. <laughs> it always goes back to money. And when you talk about the deep state and these decisions that they made to keep the Cold War going as long as possible, today it's not the Cold War. Today it's the war on terror. The war on terror has completely substituted the Cold War. Uh, it's all for the same reason. It's money. I don't think it's possible to track what the deep state is connected with all the various things that's connected with now i think that's impossible just because it's been kind of going without being checked for a very long time but just to add on to the point of with nixon 
it's really interesting to me that the history books only talk about Nixon and Watergate, but nobody ever talks about the church committee. Nope, there was no punishment for the agencies on the church committee besides like an article. But even if when you go and search up anything about the 60s, the 70s, anything like that, Watergate's the very first one, and it's Nixon's like baby as much as the Bay of Pigs is JFK's, which is to me, I mean, if you look at like the power of the deep state, I think it grew in the Cold War. I think that's when it was really like everything was being funneled into them budget wise, and they were really kind of expanding because of the aspect of the, we need our intelligence operatives. We need our agencies to have these types of powers. You get MK Ultra, which is insane. But it's really where the creativity and a lot of the unlimited funding start coming in. I mean, I thought it was weird that even with the church committee, the CIA thought it wasn't smart for them to publish their budget. And it's like you guys are exposing a heart attack gun. You guys are exposing COINTELPRO. You guys are exposing a bunch of things that are from various different agencies, and you're not going to let them publish the budget. Like academic influence, you're not going to talk about what their budget is. As soon as they say, no, we don't feel like that's necessary, you just gloss off. Like it to me, it's like the church committee was a bit of a whitewash. But that whole period of the 60s and 70s where we see the most, I mean, protests, not only about the war, but it's also the most – I would say involvement that these agencies, from what I can tell, have really had their hands in domestic populations. I mean, causing trying to it's like uh, that movie with Tom Cruise. where You're trying to prevent a crime by also like predicting it. That's what they were doing. They would find a group that they thought was going to be something against their intentions or in their endeavors, and they would infiltrate it and try and get it to go against itself, which I mean, it's a really smart strategy, but it's also like you can't predict the future you don't know if that group is going to end up being hostile or domestic terrorists or not i mean the weather underground was kind of bad but also look at 9-11 i mean 9-11 was a horrible event that happened but then we see the expansion of the security state big surveillance and that's what leads into today where we've all become normalized the aspect of everybody being able to monitor us either our emails our phones our text messages any of the things of this sort which it's only going to get worse with the, how much we have technology included into every single device that we have. Soon they'll be able to track your toilet. Every every crisis, it all goes in the same direction. It's always more power, more intrusion, right? It's never less. It's always more. Uh, I think one of the mistakes that we make sometimes is we try to judge the motives of, let's just use that term, deep state, by the same motives that that we live by. And we say, why would they do this? It's not right. And that's a that's a big problem. It gets, it's an obstacle to understanding their mindset. This all comes out of the corporate mindset, which was introduced after the Civil War when the rise of these big corporations and written right into the state laws where these corporations were, were located. Uh, was these ultra-virus acts. Ultra-virus is a legal term which basically sets the parameters of what the corporation can do, what it is legally authorized to do and how it is authorized to operate. And basically, without getting into the weeds too much, the corporations, these big, massive corporations that would come to be after World War II, starting after the Civil War, were authorized to do two things. Number one, they were to always act in the interest of the, their shareholders, and that was to uh, create profits. That was the only purpose that they existed. Some people think, well, Walmart just donated a truckload of water down in because of Hurricane Katrina. Wow, Walmart is really civic-minded. No, Walmart is not civic-minded. Walmart is doing that because it's going to generate profits. They've made a decision that that 
that that decision will bring to them more profits. In fact, written right into their ultra-virus, uh, or basically their, uh, their laws, was the fact that any board of directors or any CEO that was found to be acting in the general interest of the community or the public versus the interest of the shareholders, which is profit, could be fired. Could be fired. So that tells you what corporations are about. It's about profits and their interests. It is not about the public interest and being civic-minded. Now you say, what's that got to do with the deep state? Well, when all these business leaders came into and transitioned into government around the Great Depression, World War I, World War II, they brought with them this ultra-virus doctrine. And all of a sudden, government starts going from being what's doing what's in the public interest to doing what's in the interest of making money, generating profits. So that is a real key thing to understand about the deep state. They operate with a corporate mindset. It's about profits. It is not about the public interest. In fact, the public interest can get you fired. And if you're a CEO or you're on the board of directors, you know that. And the profits, as long as they roll in, it is a gravy train. So you don't want to lose that job. Is Could that be like a strategic thing just because if you start having individual corporations or giant monolith like monopoly-sized corporations deciding to help out the public, then more people would want to look to those companies, um, and that kind of messes with the government's control of things as well too? Because we like to look to the government wherever we get scared or wherever there's a problem. We like to look at our government to fix the issue, and I mean if you put that into the corporations, let's say Bill Gates starts handing out billions and billions of dollars just to everyone in the United States just to be able to help out with certain issues, you're going to look at Bill Gates a little bit differently, which also now instead of looking at the government to save you, you're now looking at a billionaire, you're looking at these monolith type companies. I only bring that to the point of like, if you look at Al Capone feeding soup to people during the depression, that would have been a very scary moment if more people would have started, like Pablo Escobar. I mean, was he good to his people only because he wanted their, them to trust him a little bit and be like, hey, make the people happy. They don't look into your shit. So that's kind of like what the government, I mean, we look to the government. Oh, that's what, everything. that's what the mafia did. The mafia did that. They ran their cities in their little territories and at thanksgiving they handed out turkeys and and they took care of little old ladies you know who needed rent paid and they if you had a pothole it was wrong on your on your street and the city wouldn't fix it the mafia had arranged to get it fixed and so eventually it it engendered a sense of loyalty amongst the community to that mafia family which is why when you tried to prosecute them and get somebody to testify it was like next to impossible no one would talk against the mafia so it's a very familiar tactic. Uh, a lot of despots did that. Uh, Mussolini did that with the Italian people. Hitler did that with certain favored groups. It's a pretty common tactic. With regard to corporations, though, they were trying to build something that in the Industrial Revolution, coming out of the Industrial Revolution, where you're now having to build, it used to be people had one machine, if they were lucky, in the back room of their house. But then somebody figured out, what if we had 10 machines in a separate warehouse? Or what if we had 100 machines? Or what if we had 1,000 machines? And that means we have to buy uh, 10,000 employees, which means we have to build this huge warehouse. Nobody had that kind of capital. Nobody had the kind of money to build all that. But they wanted to build that because it was going to make huge amounts of money. So the corporation was invented to bring in shareholders, investors who would, who would uh, share the risk but also share the reward. And when you bring in a lot of people, you bring in a lot of agendas. 
And so the Ultra Virus Act was designed to make sure everybody had one agenda, not a thousand agendas, one agenda. And the one agenda was to make profits. And as long as the company, the corporation was making profits, the CEO was kept on, the board of directors were kept on. Now, if at any point it was not, and that's still true today, it's not making profits, then everybody gets fired. And so that became, it was about bringing in as many investors as possible so you could build the biggest company as possible and make the biggest profits as possible. And the second part of the Ultra-Virus Act is something that is really relevant today, and I think it's done a tremendous amount of damage to, I think it had noble intentions at first, but now it's not, it's been corrupted. And that was that written right into these laws was the fact that all of the acting participants in the corporate structure, from the board of directors, to the CEO, to any management, uh, owners, whatever, all are immunized against legal liability for any action that their company takes. For any action on behalf of the company, they are completely immunized from legal liability. Okay, think about that for a second. You know, we talk about, we just came through COVID and people are frustrated because there's no accountability to pharmaceuticals because you know, they can produce whatever they want and, and there's no legal liability. You can't sue them. Okay. That's where that came from. So the corporate, now, originally it was because we want to incentivize people to invent things. We want to incentivize people to develop things, research and develop. And if they're constantly worried about lawsuits, they won't do it. So I understand the reason why it's just been corrupted. So now corporations have two things in their favor. Number one, they don't have to worry about the public interest. So if they pollute two states downriver, who cares? That's the public interest. That's not profit. It's profitable to pollute, okay? Uh, and the second thing is they don't have to worry about legal liability because in their uh, in their uh, the laws that govern their corporation, they are immunized. Now, in the corporate world, that's a bad thing. It can be corrupted. Now, you inject that into the political world and it becomes a terrible thing. A terrible thing, because now all of a sudden you get into a situation where we are today where agencies are captured by the corporate interests. Uh, the EPA is captured by oil companies. Uh, you can go down the list of all these different agencies that are supposed to be looking out for Americans and their public interests. But you see that there's like this. They go back and forth. You, you, you rise to the level of the a cabinet level position. You're in charge of an agency. And then when your time is up, you transition right into the industry that you were supposed to be regulating. You become head, part of the board of directors there. And then back and forth you go. And so there's this, this relationship between the political arena and the corporate arena. And then it's all backed up by the military. Whenever they need a hammer, whenever they need... Uh, you know, to enforce their will on, on a third party, they use the military. And uh, it's, it's, it's been proven, you know, you use the Cuba example. That was the reason Cuba became a problem. It wasn't because the mafia, I mean, the mafia was making $100 million a year under Batista. Okay, if Batista gets overthrown and Castro comes in and kicks them all out, the mafia is going to have a problem with Castro, obviously. But that doesn't involve the United States government. Why did the United States government have a problem with the with Castro? Because General Electric, Coca-Cola, United Fruit, 
and all these legitimate companies that owned all their mines, owned all their utilities, owned their public transportation system, owned everything in Cuba. Cuba was America's ATM machine. It was a cash cow. So the reason the United States government went into Cuba or attempted to go into Cuba was not to bail out the mafia. The mafia had their own reasons. It was because they had a selfish interest, a corporate interest, a profit motive that was driving them. And Cuba represented a loss of a lot of money if they allowed it to stand. Can another similar example be like what was going on in Indonesia? I know it gets chalked up to the Rockefeller family, um, which Alan Dulles was a part of, but the death of Dag Hammarskjöld, um, trying to do peace missions over to uh, Indonesia, and then his plane mysteriously goes down. And the United Nations in 2014, I think it was, decided to look into that, and they thought it was suspicious because of the death of Patrice Lumumba that Alan Dulles might have had a hand in Dag Hammarskjöld's death. That gets blamed on the Rockefeller family, but I feel like a Rockefeller family is kind of like these elites that have been involved with the deep state for a very long time i feel like they're small niche groups it is a small niche group they they if you're familiar with social darwinism which is sort of this this idea that there's an elite in society and then there's everybody else and god ordained it that way he made the elites the elite he made them smarter he made them better looking he made them richer he made them you know basically god can i marry into that family shit Exactly. And, and and you name the Rockefellers, there's a whole bunch of them. And they all send their kids to the same colleges. They go to the same prep schools. They, send, they go to the same colleges. Uh, and then they intermarried one royal family with another royal family to keep it all in house. They all sit on the same boards, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation. They all get uh, requests to, to be on the Council of Foreign Relations. It's the same group. It's how 50 or 60 people can run the entire world because it's all the companies are run by 50 or 60 people. The same people are sitting on the boards of all these different companies, and then they contribute to all the politicians. And so they're in control of the politicians like Geppetto pulling the strings of Pinocchio. And then when the military acts on the behalf of the politicians in the corporate world, they're basically acting on behalf of those same 50 or 60 people. So 50 or 60 people are running the world. And you talk about what happened in Indonesia, the same playbook happened in, in Iran, happened in Guatemala, happened in Cuba, happened in, you just go on and on and on. Hawaii, how did we get Hawaii? You know how we got Hawaii? The Dole family, Dole Pineapple. Uh, you know, they were run, they were independently governed by uh, they had a queen, and we used the United States Marines to overthrow their queen because the queen was going to, uh, you know, she wasn't giving us enough sugar plantation land, whatever. And so Dole, Sanford Dole, said, hey, I got a problem with this. And he goes to the president. He probably had a, uh, he could probably walk in the White House anytime he wanted, right? He'd made all those contributions. He was, he was like on their guest list permanently. And so he probably said something to the president and they go in with the Marines, they overthrow the queen. Next thing you know, guess who is the new governor of Hawaii? Sanford freaking Dole. And now all of a sudden Hawaii becomes a sugar plantation proxy of the United States. And then a few years later, we want to do the same thing in Cuba. Cubans were smart enough to say, well, wait a second, you're going to try to do to us what you did to Hawaii. And so before the Spanish-American War, they made the Americans promise if Cuba got free of Spain with our help, that we would not make them a colony like we did Hawaii. So, 
you know, part of our problem today is we don't have very good relations with a lot of, especially these countries in our own hemisphere, Latin America in particular, because they've seen this playbook over and over and over again. And anytime there's a resource, you mentioned Lumumba. The Congo was a broke, poor country because it was always stripped by its colonizing powers. Belgium had stripped Congo for years. Now we wanted to. Africa would have been the same thing, I feel like, with Tama Boya. Africa should be, it's so loaded with resources, those African nations should be wealthy, but they're constantly being, uh, all the precious metals, the the uh, minerals, everything that they've got, oil, whatever, it's always being stolen by the uh, developed countries. And then when a leader comes along like Patrice Lumumba, who said, wait a second, time out, we these are our resources. When a guy like Fidel Castro comes along and says, Cuba is for Cubans, not Americans, for Cubans, then they become a problem. And we take them out. We tried 600 some odd times to take out Castro. We did take out Lumumba, you know, and we took out the government in Guatemala. We took out the government in Iran and, and Indonesia. <laughs> it's the same playbook. And if you know your history, you start to see that and you start to wonder, what are we doing in Iraq? What are we doing? You know, there's a resource there. What are we doing in Syria? There's a I've, resource I, there. I think heroin and, and when we talk about Afghanistan and things of that sort, just because, I mean, Vietnam, those are like two. I mean, I know there's many reasons to go to war, but those are also like the two largest or longest wars we've ever had. And they're the two largest heroin trades or heroin triangles, basically, um, in the whole entire world, which is it's a resource. I mean, look what they use to poison Castro's cigar. It's botulinum toxin or something like that. It's black tar heroin. That's exactly what the original root chemical of some of these poison cigars were so it's like robbie why did we go to why did we want to go to vietnam which was nine thousand miles away and and fight there because to stop because communism oh yeah of course <laughs> as long as we could cloak it under communism we could basically do anything but there was a heroin trade coming out of there as well and that was what we called I mean, they made a movie about it with gene hackman the old french connection and where the, the heroin would come out of Southeast Asia and go through France and eventually Cuba. And from Cuba, it would be launched into America and sold in our biggest cities, in the inner cities. It was targeted for the inner cities. So it was accomplishing two things at once. It was making somebody a bunch of money, which was the CIA. And secondly, it was targeting our minority populations. That's no different than Britain back during the days when they had all these big, they had this huge empire of forcing Indians in India to grow poppies and instead of food so that they could starve Indians simultaneous to taking all those poppies, heroin, and forcing it on the Chinese population and killing them with drugs. This is no different. We're, do, we're doing the same thing. We were importing drugs into our inner cities to pollute the inner city minority populations and make money, just like the Brits forced the Indians to grow poppies to force those drugs on the Chinese, killing a bunch of Chinese, Opium. and at the same time killing Indians because they didn't have any food to eat. Yeah, Opium. it's been going on. I mean, that was that was a, a Malthusian idea. Thomas Malthus comes up. We we have too many people, and you know, Britain was like, well, you know, we have two of the largest countries in the world by population. We could cure two problems with one if we force the Indians to grow drugs instead of food. And that's what they did. And so 
when did it get switched domestically because that's the interesting part is that we have completely ignored what we were doing in over uh, other countries or just i mean overseas the american public has because we're very focused on here and i think we should be very focused on here but we're not focused really because we're not really getting a whole lot of progress going because the deep state is still running but they found a way to work into a tactic much like they used COINTELPRO pro to invade either the kkk the black panther parties and have them divisiveize each other they've done that here and I think now you can extend that to even social media with the amount of like fighting in between people. I think those social media companies are definitely aligned. Um, some of them, not all of them. I just think some of the big monolith ones are. But there's a real – there's got to be a point that you can mark, whether it was after the Cold War, whether it was after Watergate when people started questioning what our agencies were doing. Because a lot of blame goes, we need to start limiting our budgets of our agencies. I go, that's kind of like chopping a branch off of the main tree. It's just going to grow back in a different spot or something like that. But if you look at like, we've completely ignored what I know people talk about, what are we doing overseas? Yeah, but nobody knows. That's the thing. And their business interests are still going. Their profits hurt. Hit them with their money is, you know, go to the places where they're making their incentive. They're making all of their money. They're not making it here. I know everyone goes, well, look at all these companies that are making billions of dollars per year. I was like, but that's like the face. What's behind the face? The ones where their real money is coming from, the stuff that they know that they're not going to keep in this country in case something ever goes bad. They're keeping it where they can get it, why they can get it, and that's in other countries. You know, you you asked when did they start operating here domestically? It happened pretty quick. Uh, in 47, the National Security Act was passed. Uh, which created the CIA, a lot of people don't realize part of that act also created the opportunity or the, the authorization for the CIA to have a subcommittee, which would launch covert ops. And written right into the bylaws was this, they had to operate in foreign countries. We were, we were deathly afraid of a secret police operating here in America, but almost immediately it was. And Truman, who signed the act in 47, by the time we get to 63, 16 years later, he's figured it out. Now, he's a private citizen in Independence, Missouri, so he can't really do anything about it by this point. But he did write a letter to the Washington Post, and he said, uh, we got a problem. The CIA was supposed to be acting uh, interna you know, in the international arena, collecting intelligence, reporting that intelligence to the president. Instead, it's acting in its own interest as a sort of like a quasi self-government, and it's doing all these covert ops it's become a uh, policy making actor instead of just carrying you know collecting intelligence like it was intended now you say well so it didn't start till 63 no it started much before that that's when truman figured it out you go back to the uh, instances that uh, you, know, you were talking about uh, the media being captured by that's a domestic operation that started operation mockingbird started in the early 50s Okay, that's a domestic operation to basically infiltrate the media with CIA acolytes, uh, get people on like editors and publishers and Time writers and, and some and of the big newspapers. Get them all yeah. on your payroll, so to speak, or under your thumb so that they will report stories that are favorable to you. That is sort of our first domestic operation. And it continues to this day. The medium has changed. It's no longer as necessary to control the newspapers. So you control the social media companies. It's the same thing. Uh, Hollywood, you know, it started in the 50s with Hollywood, continues to this day. Uh, television, radio, uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on. You were talking about how 
it's impossible to know all the fingers of this deep state now because it's like a cancer. It's metastasized over decades and it reaches everywhere. And if you started to root out and try to get the main tumor, the fingers of it would touch all kinds of things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have known, you wouldn't have suspected, but it's everywhere. It is everywhere. So one domestic operation begats another when they can get away with it. You mentioned MK Ultra. That was a domestic operation. It started overseas, but it came home. And that's where they did a lot of their research and development, right here on U.S. citizens, <laughs> unsuspecting U.S. citizens. Uh, so what the CIA and the deep state has learned to do, they are masters. When when you go back and read the the, the documents of the original National Security Act, what the CIA and covert ops entailed, it was assassinations, it was coup d'etats, it was rigging of elections, it was psychological warfare against populations, it was death squads. It, I mean, there's a long list. So how difficult is it to take what you've learned to do and you've mastered in Iran and in Guatemala and Indonesia and Cuba and all these other places, Vietnam, and then bring those operations home, doing the same things and using operations like proposed operations like Northwoods as false flag operations to change policy in America to dictate we go to war with Cuba or dictate we go to war with this group or that group. All you have to do, because we're a democracy in theory, you have to you have to control the narrative. You were talking about Nixon earlier and the story that is associated with Nixon that everybody believes. It's called a narrative. Some people call it a cover story. What our intelligence operation or agencies are masters at is creating cover stories. We are going to do this because that is happening. And the American people accept it. We've, especially in early days, in the 50s and the 60s, we had no reason to doubt that they were telling us the truth. Now we're a little bit more skeptical. But back then we believed everything we were told. And so cover stories or narratives were created that dictated future actions. And so the narrative was, well, Fidel Castro is a communist 90 miles off our coast. We need to go in and get rid of him. Oh, okay. We'll support the Bay of Pigs. We'll support Operation Mongoose. We'll support all these things. Uh, the narrative was, well, Nixon's a crook, you know, and he was cheating on, in an election trying to surveil the Democrats. And so, and then he covered it all up. And we'll bring in the witnesses to prove it. Not telling the American people that half of those witnesses were plants. Half of those witnesses were CIA or, or people that were affiliated with intelligence in some manner, shape, form that were in on the cover story. They were in on the joke. And so whenever you see a government investigation like the Warren Commission or the how the hearings, the Watergate hearings or, or all these different, it's usually a cover-up of some sort. They are going to take that narrative and they're going to uh, disguise maybe or, or keep away from the public view some things that might not reflect real well on them, and they're going to feed the American people more of the narrative. So that all we've been taught is that Nixon was a crook. Now, I'm not defending Nixon, okay? But he was set up. He was set up because of a larger problem, at least as far as the deep state was concerned. He was making nice with the Russians. 
if he got his way, the Cold War would be over. And there were powers that be that didn't want the Cold War to be over. It was too lucrative. So they set him up. He was his his problem in that whole thing was that he was too easy to set up. He was naturally very uh, let's say he, he was very suspicious of of the of the intelligence agencies. He was very suspicious of the Democrats stealing the election from him. He felt like he had it stolen from him in '60, and so all you had to do was kind of feed him a little bit of a line about what the Democrats were willing to do to steal another election from him, and he'd fall right into your trap, all right? And they, the CIA would send people to get close to him, to work for him. They weren't working for him. They were working against him. And then when the right moment came, they sprung the trap on him, and he fell right into it. But it was a trap. He was entrapped. But anyway, my main point in all this is that these this deep state has an agenda, and they repeat the same operational, this is one of the reasons why they re redact information when they do declassify a document and they let us see something from the inside. Oftentimes the document is so heavily redacted, you, you get nothing of value from it because their sources and methods are so sacrosanct, they can't allow them anybody to know what their sources and methods are. And that is so that they can repeat the same operation down the road because it's worked so well before. And so what they did in 50 in Iran and then in Guatemala and all these other places, they've continued to repeat so that you look forward to today. And where are we today? We're in the Ukraine. And uh, you see some of the same things going on, the same cover story. Oh, it's the bad guys, the Russians invading the good guys, the Ukrainians. And we need to defend the Ukrainians, even though they're not a NATO ally. And they don't say anything about the fact that we've been basically stoking this since 2014, trying to get Putin to invade Ukraine. We wanted Putin to invade Ukraine. We were desperate for Putin to invade Ukraine. And eventually Putin did invade Ukraine. And that gave us carte blanche to go in and do what we wanted to do all along. OK, it's there's always this agenda. And, you know, until you go back and look in history and see where it started, I, I, I maintain it came from the corporate uh, idea that public interest is not what we do. We do what is in the profit interest. That's all we care about is profits. And we are legally immunized from any legal liability. Once that made its way into government. Now politicians begin acting the same way, and then they used the military as their hammer. And so everywhere you see the military acting, it's usually because they're the last ones, and they are being unleashed by the corporate and political axis that wants to get something done in these places to make money. And so they send the military in under a guise, under a pretext of communism or terrorism or some ism, and the American people lap it up. And we've been lapping it up for years. There's a narrative out there of America always being like the guy that comes in to help out the little guy. You know, that's been propagandized for a very, very long time. And I'm not saying America is bad, but the way that they do certain things and it's all under the grace of like being a patriot or something of that sort, they're necessarily like people don't even bother looking into it at that point. You know, the whole Ukraine issue just seemed like America was going to help out the little guy. 
And it was like, I, I guess, but it, did anybody actually question and want to look into it more? No, because if you look throughout history, everything has been, are you a communist or are you this? Are you against America? That's not saying that at all. It's just saying that there's some real things you can question. I mean, look at the times we've had war when people had to come. Rosie the Riveter is a great example of a propaganda figure that comes out for women to step up and start making machinery parts. That's the whole thing is like, there's this whole like, help us it's us they're gonna come over here and they're gonna get you and then america gets this kind of i wouldn't say umbrella but becomes like an umbrella to cover like the american people as well too even though if you're questioning your government like i don't think you should be over there hey guess what it's they're, they're gonna come over here and they're gonna take us all out i mean i might be far in saying that but i just look at every single thing that we have and immediately blind faith i mean i asked my grandpa what was it like fighting in vietnam and he was like we were just killing the enemy and i was like but they're people like you, you still murdered people. You know that, right? And they'll get really controversial with you and kind of want to put up fists at that point, because now you're talking about them and their patriotic duty of protecting their family and fighting overseas, which to me, I'm like, I get I, I don't know. There's many reasons to go to war, but there's a, a blind allegiance that is just kind of in us. It's either conditioned. It's something. And I think it's the fear of like, it's going to hurt me or hurt the people I care about. So you have to do something and protect the country that you love when it's like, you can question unethical things. MK ultra is a big unethical thing. But if you question your CIA, if you question these institutions, people go, what, are you like communist? Are you a terrorist or something? Why there are government, we have to care about our governments. Like, that's not what that is. That's just checks and balances on our government. Right. Well, you know, it's called waving the bloody flag or waving the bloody shirt. When a politician is trying to get votes, uh, oftentimes they'll uh, uh, evoke uh, images of, of war and how it's us versus them. And, of course, that implies that if you don't vote for him, that you're voting for them. You're voting for the enemy. And patriotism is a strong impulse. I mean, it, it is a strong driving motivator for a lot of people, and myself included. We're all patriots, but that doesn't mean you accept. There's a difference when you just accept blindly what you're being told. That that's that's getting into a different arena. That's no longer patriotism. That's just being gullible. That's being easy to manipulate. And a lot of crimes against humanity have been uh, have happened under the guise of patriotism. I promise you, the German people thought they were being patriotic. I promise you, if you ask Germans. Uh, in the lead up to World War II or during World War II, that they thought they were doing what was good for the fatherland. You know, they, they didn't see it the way we saw it. There's two, there's different perspectives. It's not till later, and you can sort through history that you can look back and judge evil, and 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 maybe it can happen in the moment, you know. But oftentimes, in the heat of the moment, everyone thinks they're right. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. When we were fighting Japan. And Japan, when Japan attacked us at Pearl Harbor and we felt so victimized, I promise you the Japanese people didn't feel the same way. They felt victimized because we cut off all their oil. And they said, we didn't, we didn't leave any choice. There's always two perspectives. And, you know, when you look at the Ukraine, the, the perspective that is driving this is that we have an irrational hatred for all things Putin and Russian. And... It doesn't take a genius to go back to 2016 and see that Hillary Clinton knew that is why she concocted the whole Trump-Russia collusion thing, because she knew the American people would buy it and the media would buy it, because we already believe Russians are bad. 
And ergo, Trump is bad because he's in bed with the Russians. Now we know that the whole thing was concocted. And yet the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC News, all the big media outlets still believe it's true, even in the face of evidence. Because this anti-Russian thing is so strong in our country, uh, you know, in, in the aftermath of World War, you got to go back. In World War I, it was the Russians that dropped out of the war. They were, on our, they were on our side. They dropped out of the war and left the Allies in a bad spot. If the Americans had not joined in World War I when we did, the combination of the Americans joining with the Russians dropping out still left the Allies in a strong enough position to win. But we never forgot that or forgave them for dropping out of that war. Lenin pulled them out of that war. And then fast forward to World War II, they're on our side, but only because we have a common enemy. Before Germany invaded Russia, Germany and Russia signed their own peace treaty that Hitler eventually double-crossed them on. And so in World War I and World War II, we look at the Russians as basically traitors. And the only reason they were on our side in World War II is because Hitler was a bigger traitor to them. <laughs> he, he invaded them. But as quickly as we could, we double-crossed them. Uh, uh, Roosevelt and Churchill had made a decision that when this war was over, we were going to accept nothing less than unconditional surrender from, from the Axis powers, nothing less, and that we would not go behind Russia's back. Stalin was afraid that we would go behind her back and negotiate separate peace agreements with Germany and Italy, etc. And we said we wouldn't do that. And we promptly did it. Dulles, you mentioned Dulles. Uh, Operation Sunrise, if you, if you get into that, it's an effort for us to steal as many of the assets from Germany as we could, whether they were physical assets or personnel. Most of them were people, scientists, people that could help us bake rockets, people that could help us learn more about medicine because you mean paper the Germans clip? didn't. I'm sorry? Operation Paperclip? Operation Paperclip, yeah. And and Sunrise is the operation where they snuck out through these rat lines, all these German uh, Nazis who really should have gone to Nuremberg and faced justice, but we snuck them over here to America to help us in the next fight, which was going to be against the Russians. So we we made this public deal that we would accept nothing less than unconditional surrender, and then we promptly signed separate peace deals with strategic German Nazis and snuck them out through Operation Sunrise to America, and they became the basis of our space program, of a lot of our medicine going forward, et cetera, et cetera. And Stalin never forgot that. We've been double-crossing them. They've been double-crossing us for as long as I can remember. And so then you, you then we enter into this Cold War period, and I was raised, I don't, maybe you weren't raised because you're younger than me, but I was raised to think Russians were just barely above the level of a beast, right? You, all Russians are bad. I saw Rocky. That's about it. There you go. I mean, that's what we thought about Russians. I'm sure they were taught the same about us. And so you grow up with this so that when you get to 2016 and Hillary needs an excuse for why she lost to Trump, she says, well, it's the Russians. The Russians did it. Trump was in bed with the Russians. And for the next eight years, maybe, I mean, it's been longer. It's 2023. So you know, for the last seven years or so, that's all we've heard. And now we finally get the evidence and it, the whole thing was a concoction from the word go. It's well, crazy. Why did we buy it? 
it's crazy to me how strong that is because they had no evidence for those claims. And then I, everyone just kind of like, sh you know, shrugged their shoulders and moved over. But they were Hillary Clinton was meeting with the Secret Service and the CIA and a bunch of people. They were prepping her. And the, I think the official quote was that they were going to prep the next president of the United States. And then she lost. And then they didn't know what to do at that point because I don't think they thought Trump was going to win, which just shows you a little bit how like there's a bit of a disconnect there. But I, all that stuff that's happening recently, I mean, look at all the stuff that's happening with just the word Russian disinformation. Now, we know there is disinformation that is Russian propaganda that is out there. There's top five uh, sites on Facebook. Uh, the first one is a Facebook page called My Baby Daddy Ain't Shit. It's got like 10 million likes, and it's just – it's the you could tell a bot runs it because it just puts up a, like a meme or a post of a picture of a sunrise, and it says like to all the single mothers out there, and then a bunch of single mothers will like that post, and it's like a Christian page as well too as their second one, but – that word now has become whenever you want to talk about something that could be necessarily considered conspiratorial is either labeled as misinformation, disinformation, or Russian propaganda, which is not true. There are really serious ethical concerns. For instance, there was an intelligence hearing report on April 19th that talked about that there's more evidence to support that the Wuhan lab should have been something that should have been examined. That's around three years now where we completely neglected that, and now they're talking about like, oh, yeah, it did come from there. Or So that whole thing could have been completely avoided, but there's this whole idea out there that's instilled in some of these people that call themselves fact-checkers. The fact-checkers are not fact-checkers. There's no way to not have your own bias into something, and that's exactly what those they, – they all have a political agenda, politifact, all those sites that call this lies, lies, truth, lies, truth. It's the same thing a disinformation board would do. What are those people doing? Who's in charge of those? What are their biased views? Everyone's got one, and I'll tell you that it's anything that necessarily might be labeled conspiratorial is really just something that's threatening the system. And to me, that's a big issue because – how do we talk about it then? How do we learn about it? How do we decipher what information is true when we can't even have the conversation about it? I mean I'm sure there's plenty of things in this episode that people are going to hear and be like, oh, that's conspiratorial. Oh, that's disinformation. It's – you can back up a lot of things, and there's a real point of just having the conversation about it. Google it yourself. Are you going to be able to find it? Hopefully. I mean I put up an article about Biden apologizing for using – psychological weapons or something like that, psychic warfare or something like that. He made a public apology about that because some people might have been affected by some of the weapons that they use. I can't find the article, but I showed it on air. I showed exactly the article and everything, but a month later, you can't find it now on Google at all. So that's limiting search results. That's blending information. That's creating a your way that you want society to go. And the reason I've been thinking about this a lot is I talked to a guy who studied East Germany when the Berlin Wall was still up, and he talked about meeting these censor people, these people that would go through and have a book and go through everything, every single book that would come out and take out certain things to a point where there's only like a couple sentences on a whole page. And he goes, they weren't bad people, but they had a book and a template, and they were trying to form society. If you can't talk about censorship at all, that's a crime back then. You couldn't talk about all this. They were trying to it's like eugenics. They were trying to make their own society in the way they wanted it to be, and that's kind of what we've been doing for a very long time and where it's kind of threatening when it comes to disinformation boards. You're trying to make people think exactly like you and have no outside opinions that necessarily could be close to the truth. So when does the truth ever come out? Well, at this point, I don't know if it ever will. There's a lot of people that have been voicing things for a very long time, but you see what we did to Snowden. People call him a hero, and people call him a – uh, traitor to his own country. It's like, 
recognizing evil and exposing corruption and unethical things as being a traitor, I mean, you might have a different opinion than I do about that, but I look at what we've done to many people who have tried to be whistleblowers, and we used to incentivize that, and we don't do that at all anymore. Oh, no, we punish it. The guy, it's up there, they just had a hearing last week, you know, and a whistleblower, and he said basically his life is ruined. He said they will ruin you. They will ruin you. The government will bury you if you are a whistleblower or, and you, you talk about Snowden, he can't even come back to his own country. And all he did was reveal what we were doing, you know, and, and we, we denied it, but he gave the evidence and he embarrassed the American government because he had the evidence. And, you know, that's, that's really what it comes down to is we have this agenda and we don't want the American people to know, which is one of the reasons why the intelligence uh, community launched that domestic operation Mockingbird so early in the game is because if you can control the information that the American people get, you can basically do anything. Uh, I wanted to read you a quote, uh, Robbie. This is, this is going back to what we were talking about with the deep state and how our companies drove our military and our politicians. And this is by a general. His name is, uh, he was the commandant of the, of the United States Marine Corps for years and years and years. His name was General Smedley Butler. And on his, when he retired, he wrote a book. And in this book, he said, quote, I spent 33 years in active military service. And during that time, I spent most of my time as a high class muscle man for American big business for Wall Street, and for their bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a safe place for the national bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of over half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers Harriman in 1902 all the way to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interest in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit company, United Fruit, in 1903. And in China in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil was unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. I was just a paid gun thug for Brown Brothers Harriman. Brown Brothers Harriman was the uh, largest, most powerful uh, corporate. You know, it was. It was. Let me let me tell you exactly what it was. I've got it right here. Uh, because you need to know the names that were involved with Brown Brothers Harriman. It was the world's largest private investment bank in the 1930s. It was a United States banking firm that operated as a base for a German guy named Fritz Thyssen. Fritz Thyssen owned the largest steel company in Germany and was a big proponent or big backer of Adolf Hitler. In the 1930s, before Adolf Hitler, before they even the world even heard of Adolf Hitler, Fritz Thyssen basically financed his raise to power. And how did Thyssen operate? Uh, how did they get to be what they were eventually to be? It was through the help of Brown Brothers Harriman, which was based in New York. Uh, one of their uh, 
affiliates was a company or a bank called the United or Union Banking Corporation, which was run by Prescott Bush. Of course, everybody knows who Prescott Bush was. Bush was the grandfather of George Herbert Walker Bush, who was the father of George W. Bush. This goes to this dynastic family, these royal families that come out of these banking firms, these law firms like Sullivan and Cromwell, where the Dulles brothers came out of. Sullivan and Cromwell was representing IG Farben. IG Farben was a German company that made Zyklon B. Zyklon B was the gas that killed the Jews in the in the cream in the uh, gas chambers. Okay. So I go, I, I bring this up because these corporations, though they're affiliated with causes that are very much against the public interest, that could be looked back on and seen to be against even humanity's interest, don't care. They're not in it for the public interest. They're not in it for humanity. They're in it to make money. And when you start to see the amalgamation of, of corporate profits with policymakers, politicians like Bush, uh, like the Dulles brothers, uh, and then you see what Major Smedley Butler says his role was the military, he was the hammer. And he basically lays out where he was and what the United States Marine Corps was doing on behalf of Brown Brothers Harriman and Sullivan and uh, Cromwell, these, these firms that were controlled by these few elites. That's the deep step. The corporations, the policymakers, politicians, and the military working together to take advantage of, and he listed all these countries, Mexico, Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, Dominican Republic, Honduras. These are all developing countries. They, not one of them can stand up to the power of the United States, but they have a resource. And we wanted that resource. So we sent guys like Smedley Butler in, and he was a willing stooge. He admits it in his book. I had to do this for, to keep my career. But when he retired, he felt bad about it, and he confessed. That's the deep state. And it all goes back to money. And, of course, money equals power. And as long as you have the money, you have the power. And you do anything you want. And that's what they do. So you talk about we don't, you know, the media doesn't report it, and we don't know. We're, we're taught that America is doing good for all these little countries. Ask these little countries. Ask them if America is doing good. They don't view it the same way because the Americans are the bullies and we're coming in taking what's theirs and leaving them behind destitute. Always destitute. And then a politician comes along who says, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do that in Cuba. We're not going to do that in Laos. John F. Kennedy he negotiated a peaceful settlement in Laos, was working on negotiating a peaceful settlement in Vietnam, and was not going to go into Cuba. And they said, holy crap, we got to get rid of this guy. He's not playing our game. And then another politician comes along, Nixon, who starts making nice with China and Russia. And this Cold War uh, pretext, which was always the Russians are bad, the Russians are bad, the Russians are bad. If that goes away, we can't do all these little things that we've been doing. And so he has to go away. And then you look who they're replaced with. LBJ comes in and reverses everything Kennedy's doing. Next thing you know, we're involved in Vietnam for the next 12 years. Uh, after Nixon 
you know, a couple presidents down the road, we get Reagan and we have this big proxy war in Afghanistan. We have this buildup of the military, unlike we've ever had in the history of our country. Uh, now, it's interesting. The Soviet Union at some point immolated on itself. It, we couldn't stop their collapse. And it was inconvenient for us to no longer have an enemy. Okay, everybody celebrated like we'd won the Cold War. There were some people, I promise you, in the halls of power that were not celebrating. The Cold War had been their golden goose for a long time. And they no longer had their golden goose. And so that's why we transition. We go through kind of a period in the wilderness where we wander around for a little bit. But then the war on terror quickly took its place. And believe it or not, has completely, it's given us more power because now we have power over our own people. You know, the Cold War, the enemy was out there. The communists were out there. And so, but now the war on terror, those those hijackers lived instant amongst us for a year, right? Uh, and these sleeper cells, they come to our country and they they blend. And so now the thing is, well, we got to surveil our own people. And that's where we are now. So the authority, the Cold War transitioning to the war on terror has just only increased the authority of the state over the individual, because now everyone's a suspect. It's not just the Russians anymore. It's everybody. It's our own people. And so guys like Snowden have to be castigated. We have to call him a traitor because he is an impediment. He's an obstacle. He's the same thing Kennedy was. He's the same thing Nixon was. You have to make an He's, example. You got to make an example of him. And any whistleblower that comes along, you got to make an example of them, ruin them. I mean, financially, physically, emotionally, every which way, uh, ruin them so that no one else will dare stand in the way of the agenda. And the agenda is to have complete, uh, complete control. You know, war is the greatest enterprise has ever been invented in the history of mankind financially. Permanent war is even better because it never ends. It's permanent. And so you always have the military industrial complex taken care of on one hand, because they're always having to build their weapons and weapon systems and surveillance equipment, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also give the government infinite power over its people, war powers. So war is good to that industry. Permanent war is even better. And that's where we are. If you look at the wars that we have fought, I mean, it's unreal. Have you ever looked at a list since 45? It's it's unreal. Uh, here's a list. All right. This is most of these have been since I've been alive. All right. So the Cold Wars began in 45 and ended in 91. So that's a 46-year period during which we fought proxy wars in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and now currently in U Ukraine. Okay. So it hasn't ended. We are still fighting a proxy war against the Russians in Ukraine. But that's not all. We have had U.S. forces deployed in Grenada, Beirut, Libya, Panama, the Persian Gulf. How many times? One, two, three, whatever. Somalia, Haiti, Yugoslavia during Clinton. And then after 9-11, the War of Terror drew us into conflicts in Afghanistan two more times. Libya again, <clears throat> excuse me, Iraq again, 
and Syria. The war we've you know we went we went decades, a couple centuries fighting a war here, a war there, you know. Now it's just one war bleeds into the next. It's this permanent war industry. And if you look at the budgets of the Pentagon and the of course, we don't know what the budget is for the CIA, as you mentioned. It's all classified, but I promise you, it'll reflect the budget of the Pentagon. It's gone from you know, a couple billion dollars, then you go to fifty billion dollars, and a hundred billion dollars, and five hundred billion dollars. In the last budget, it was close to a trillion. I would raise I, that up way higher. You should look at NASA's budget. I did a podcast about NASA um, in general. We did like a space podcast. Me and a couple of buddies. I pulled up NASA's budget. There's like, I mean, just in 23 to 24, which is we're not even we're five months in. They already have like 90 billion dollars that was already spent. And I was like, what? And like you start looking with 363 million to maintain technologies and equipment, 260 something million to maintain certain officers and certain people ahead of strategic services. And it's just like, what's your budget from like last year? Their budget is like unbelievable where I'm like, look, I'm pro going to space and doing all that, but I don't agree with that budget at all and how much we're spending when there's some serious issues domestically that we could be fixing when it comes to just local populations that are suffering in certain places. We have a fucking homeless crisis and nobody's fucking doing anything really about it. They talk about it, but they're not doing anything about it. But that black budget that they have is like, I don't know where that comes from. And the, the, the issue with digital currency coming up um, where everything's going to be digital and we're not going to have actual physical money anymore, which we saw during the pandemic is sort of being cut down. We're getting used to the idea condition to not using paper anymore, using card. But that's a really big problem because at that point, I mean, the numbers of zeros and ones that just don't mean anything really anymore. And I know we, you know, cash, you have in the number that's in your bank account, but look, that's a very controlling aspect, and that's very dangerous, especially if you're someone like me or if you're someone like you that wants to talk about some serious issues that are going on in this country. They don't like that, and they decide to make your bank account zero. Now, you can't do anything. You can't pay your bills. That's where it'll go. It'll be just like China's social credit system. China's social credit system started because there's too many people to police in China. So they thought it would give incentive to civilians to rat on or to talk on their neighbors and get an incentive from that. And now it has grown dangerously out of control to the point where it is now, where it is this monolithic machine that of basically control that will come here. And I know people say you can't compare America to China. Everything leads one way the goalposts keep moving and this is when you start recognizing similarities and you don't just go okay that's a coincidence no it's not look at where it goes it's power nobody stops at just one everyone usually goes a little bit farther because they know that they can it's when the american people put their foot down but then even then they just back off a little bit wait another year and then they unleash it again and then there you go we're done it's at that point we've known what it was like before and now we forget yeah yeah, that social credit system, yeah, it's it's a scary thing because you can take away a person's livelihood. I mean, you saw it in Canada a little bit when those farmers or those truckers were protesting and they start shutting down bank accounts and and you dry up everything at that the point. The CCP grabbed a 21-year-old girl for logging onto a VPN, just a VPN to do her schoolwork. She logged on. Three hours later, they knocked at our door. They took her to one of those camps. They shaved her head, and then they took away her ability to have kids. And she lost her scholarship or whatever education she had. She lost her place where she was living. She had a, she came end up coming over here to the United States. Her whole life went to shit. 
And there's a lot of issues here. And I even one good thing that Trump's administration, that Biden's administration picked up from the Trump administration was the fact that they were tough on China, the conditions they have with the CCP. Nobody remembers, but Trump sent back a, uh, a shipment of hair that was sent over here because all he did was ask the question, where did this hair come from? Because we know you have concentration camps and we don't think that you got that legally from those people. And they called us racist and they jumped on that Asian hate movement. And the same thing happened with Nike. When Nike just asked where their shoes were, like, are you paying the people that are making our shoes a reasonable wage? They called us racist, and they hopped on that. When Xi Jinping, I don't, I think it's Xi Jinping, when he criticized, I think it was Trump, when they were talking about Black Lives Matter, he's like, why are you letting them do that? That's what he said about the whole movement. And then he realized that there was this woke movement over here, and they captured upon that, and they jumped on top of that. And that's what I try and like show people. It's like, look at China. Every way that they're working with their government, that will come here. What did the people in China do? They don't ever fight each other. They just talk about the government. They know their government's bad, but now they're so used to it. Look what we're doing here. We're fighting each other. We're not talking about our government. It's it's like this slow turning process, and I, that might be a large example. I'm sorry for doing that in such short words, but you start seeing some lines that are kind of symmetrical, and you start going, shit, is that going to happen here? And it will happen here, but I mean, I don't know. That could be 50 years from now. That could be 20 years from now. Everything's moving so fast with technology. Wait till we get autonomous vehicles. Well, that's what, uh, to leave home. Been, in, in your neck of the woods up there in the Northeast, there's a candidate for Democrat president, uh, Joseph or Kennedy. Kennedy Jr. Have you been paying any attention to anything he's been saying? Because I, he's talking about it. I've he's about talking about what you're he is talking about what you're talking about. I listened to a podcast the other day where he spent pretty much an hour talking about how technology has become almost like the wet dream of totalitarianism, totalitarian, uh, because everything that Joseph Stalin ever wanted to do in Russia but couldn't do because technology didn't allow him to do it. A new Joseph Stalin could come along today and with the technology that is available today, control, completely control his population, completely control it because of technology. Uh, and he is maintaining that there are alarmists in our society that are driving problems making them into crises and he used two examples he used covid and he used the climate change alarmists and he said people are using these legitimate issues to create a mass hysteria to generate a crisis to allow for these new technologies to take away people's individual freedoms and their rights and he said it's an agenda and he says, what's happened is these issues have become so divisive now because some people see what's happening. And so they don't just resist the idea that there's climate change that, that moderately they say there's no such thing. They just because they don't want the technology that's going to come along and take away their freedom. Same thing with the COVID stuff. And he said, we've got to get to a point as a country where, where we can dial back the tension a little bit and see this totalitarian creep that's happening where technology is being foisted upon us in the form of surveillance, uh, big brother with the, with the social credit system, uh, with social media companies and all these prying eyes where it could be manipulated or misused by the wrong person. And he said, history teaches us there is always 
a wrong person. There will always be a wrong person who comes along to try to take advantage of that. And so we have to write protections in to the law or into our into our society where we say we're not going to accept that, even if that means we're a little bit less secure. We will trade a little bit less security for a little bit more freedom. That's been the American ideal from the beginning of the time, which is why in the Cold War, we were so easy to spy on because Russians could come here so easily and spy. They could live amongst us and and blend. It was very difficult to get Americans into Russia, which is why we had to come up with the fake defector program because they have a totalitarian system over there and they could keep outsiders out. We had an open system and we allowed outsiders in. Now, did that mean we were a little bit less secure? Yes, but we had more freedom. And in the end, freedom won. But we're quickly going in the direction of, let, we want more security. We're trading away all of our individual freedoms and rights for more security. It's because people don't we know what those freedoms are. completely secure. People don't know what those freedom and rights are. They don't understand that if one goes and they all go, it's a pillar. It's a, it's a, it's literally a, it's a literally a domino theory. The one that they really t tackled the most, and I kind of just thought of this, the gun issue. I don't own a gun, but I support anybody who wants to own a gun. It's their right to have so as an American. It's much like I fight on the on the the pillar of freedom of speech. That is so fucking important. Like putting in reporting on certain videos or putting in reporting on tweets, putting in things that you can flag or get people to look at and fact checkers can look at or whatever. Not even fact checkers, just the whoever owns the platform. Be like, you know what? I call this hate speech and they'll just take it off. The fact that there's a button on Facebook and there has been surveys that have tested this and exposed this, that an angry face emoji gets more reactions and more people to interact with that post if you have that anger face emoji in there. So that's what Facebook did. They added that. It used to be a like and a dislike button or actually it was a thumbs up button. That was it. But they added the emojis because people would interact more with those emojis. They saw that people would interact with that. And then certain emojis that go over a certain peak point, like angry faces, if that hits a certain number compared to the happiness one, then Facebook checks it out and sees what it is. And that's like a big thing of like, you're already having the public moderate the public. So that's limiting freedom of speech right there in a very small, I mean, significant way in a sense. But then look at the gun issue. How many Americans own guns? The Americans that are fighting to keep their guns, for instance, those are the ones that are like, I care about the gun amendment. Most Americans who don't have guns go, eh, you know, whatever. I don't own a gun, so it's, it doesn't bother me if that goes away. You can't let that thinking start because as soon as that goes, then the other amendments go. Then other things that are individual freedoms start to go. When lockdowns first happened, they were charging you $5,000 in my town if you left your house without a work visa. I said – is anybody paying attention to our constitutional rights? Nobody thought of that because it was a pandemic and it was a disease out there. I go, look, beside that, though, that's complete government overreach into our lives, into our rights as Americans that we have, we, we have and people have fought and died for. So that's what the whole argument is. You got to like they dangle a carrot and people get distracted. It's not saying that like you don't care about people by saying, you know, you support gun rights and you support all these types of things. You can have rules that are implied. I would say a human oversight, not like government oversight, like the general public oversight onto really being like, hey, this is this and this is this. Talking about the NRA, that's a serious issue in some cases as well too. But you can't let the whole amendment go out the window, and you can't let government have control of that. For instance, abortion. 
That's a really sketchy topic with a lot of people. But when you start letting the government make medical decisions for you, you start seeing how far they're going to go. And just because your person's in a position of power at the time that whatever this is all going on doesn't mean it's going to stay like that when their position is done. And that's like the really important thing that a lot of people don't really see because right now their guy's winning and it's like this candidacy. Why can't the parties work together, in my opinion, like have a Democrat and Republican go up there? You're going to have – it's such a short-term thing to look and say, well, my side's winning right now, so I support it, because it's not always going to be your side that's winning. And you mentioned the uh, you know, gun rights people, and, and I don't own a gun, so I don't really care what they do. with gun. No, it's the principle that matters. It's the principle. It's like Martin Niemöller, that famous uh, pastor, that German pastor, who after the Holocaust, when they're trying to figure out the world is trying to figure out how could the German people let that happen? Martin Niemöller encapsulated it perfectly. He said, well, first, when they came for the uh, the homosexuals, I didn't protest. I didn't say anything because I wasn't a homosexual. He said, and then when they came for the trade unionists, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then when they came for the Jews, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. But then when they came for me, there was no one left to say anything for me. And that is true in any uh, individual liberty situation. You may not own a gun. You may not speak out on a public platform or write or do anything that that requires that that would necessitate freedom of speech. Although I would argue freedom of speech is applicable to everybody at all times. But you may think, well, this freedom doesn't really matter in my life. It's not going to really change my life. It's going to change our lives. I promise you, if enough people take that attitude, then we'll see a chipping away. This freedom will go away. This right will go away. And next thing you know, we'll wake up and it's like the toad that, that, that's in the boiling pot of water. He wasn't in the boiling pot of water at first. He was in a pot of warm water and he liked it. He didn't realize the temperature was being turned up. And before he knew it, he was boiled alive. That's us. That's us. And it really encourages me that someone your age is taking an interest in this. Oh, I'm a pessimist, a hundred percent. I'm a pessimist. We talked about this before you mentioned me. I'm too young to be pessimistic. I just, I have seen people and I, I don't give people the, I don't know, not the chance, but it's really hard to put your weight in change to happen. And I know we have had change in the past, but at this point right now, it's just so divided on so many things. And I like talking about these issues. I think they're important. I think people should be educated on them, but we always get to the door and we knock and we never go in. Like that to me is the biggest thing. That's not starting a revolution. That's not even talking about that discussion. What it is, is just about, we forget, we move on, life gets hard, all these types of things. And then I know people go, RFK is going to be the I just I don't know if that's I believe too much in a deep state to even think that could be a possibility. I don't I, I agree with you, Robbie, that you can't put your hope in a person. I mean, Trump proved that. Okay. But history, if his history is your guide, then you need to know that the American Revolution was fought with only one third of the American public on the on the side of a revolution. Two thirds of Americans were either ambivalent. Or they were they were loyalists, okay. So massive change happened in our country and in world history because of one third of the thirteen colonies population. That's a small minority, and they enacted huge change. The Civil War was fought between 
two sides that didn't agree over one issue. And, you know, the, the South had, we, we were afraid that they were going to get the support of overseas countries because they, these overseas countries bought the South's cotton. And yet the war was fought and a courageous man like Abraham Lincoln dared, he, he gave his life basically for this issue, right? But look at the change. Look at the change. It took a seismic event, but it divided our country more so than it's even divided today. And you can go forward from there. There's been uh, massive social change. You know, you talk about these corporations and we're talking about the origins of the deep state. They ran wild for a while. We had the John Rockefellers of the world. We had the Vanderbilts of the world. We had the Jay Golds of the world. We had these, these massive monopolists, and some people call them robber barons. And they had a steady stream of immigrant uh, workers, and they could basically mistreat everybody. Well, as a result of that, you get the Chautauqua movement. The Chautauqua movement leads to the labor unions. The labor unions were, lead to worker rights. Worker rights and, and this whole movement brings about a progressive movement, which pushes back against this overreach by this corporate mentality that there's the elites and then there's everybody else. And so out of the progressive movement comes things like women get the right to vote, uh, no child labor, which is a favorite instrument of these monopolists to work these poor kids to death, pay them nothing, you know, uh, so no child labor. I mean, there were a whole bunch of things that came about that made our society better because somebody finally stood up to the very powerful, to the very rich, to the government that was captured by those very powerful and very rich, and they got something done. And it took some presidents. I mean, it took Teddy Roosevelt, it took Woodrow Wilson, it took uh, William Howard Taft, it took some progressive presidents, but we've been fighting that battle ever since. There's been that battle between the corporate elitist and then the people, and every now and then you get a, a guy or a, a movement that comes along that stands up, and because it represents the majority, they win. They win. It, but it usually takes a seismic event. It, sometimes, I hate to say it, it takes a war, it takes a depression, it takes a civil rights movement, it takes something that is hard, and people have to be willing to sacrifice. I don't know. I can't speak for your generation, but my generation has not had to sacrifice very much. We've not had wars and all those things that we got drafted into. You know, I look at my parents' generation. My dad went through the draft for Vietnam, and a lot of boys got drafted. He didn't, but a lot of boys got drafted. Fifty-some thousand died. In a, that was a defining moment in their life. We've not really had any defining moments. And the younger generations, even less so. Life's been pretty easy. And so oftentimes it takes a moment, a defining moment where people have to decide, am I willing to fight and die for this? Does it matter that much to me? Or ah, does it really not matter that much to me? And it might not be a majority of the people, like in the American Revolution. It might only be a third. And they thought they were crazy. The two-thirds were against the one-third saying, they're going to drag us all into war. We're all going to be under the thumb of the king. But the one-third were so committed, they got it done. And it's going to take a one-third. It doesn't take a majority. It takes a very committed minority to get it done. I promise you, you ask Martin Luther King, if he felt like he had the will of the people behind him, the American people, he would say no. 
it took a road, you know, a few committed people who were willing to lay down their life. And sometimes that's what it comes to. I, I look at Edward Snowden, a guy like him, and I think he's a committed guy and he's been paying the price ever since. But he's a committed guy. I listen to Oliver Stone talk about him because, of course, he made that movie about him. And he's he spent hours with him in Russia. And he spent hours with him developing this movie. And Oliver Stone is extremely passionate when he talks about Snowden. He said, this is a young man who, when he started, he thought he was doing the right thing. Now he's become, he's grown in, he was just a kid, basically. But he's grown into this movement. And he's become this committed warrior for a, for a cause that he is literally laying down his life for. And history looks back at people like that. Like, a, you remember the guy in the Revolutionary War who got hung? And he said, I regret that I only have but one life to, to lose for my country. That was a committed guy. He knew, okay, the end of the line for me is right here. But that line lives on. And his spirit lives on. We still have your evidence of that. I think I'm evidence of that. In our country, there are still people who believe in that line. And that's why they have to resort to underhanded techniques, to power grabs, to uh, totalitarian methods to get their message out, to do what they want to do, because they don't have the will of the people, and they know they don't have the will of the people. So they have to enforce it. And that goes to that deep step mentality is, Okay, we don't care what the will of the people is. We're immunized from legal liability. And if we don't get what we want through legal means, we'll use the military as the hammer. And so domestically, it's not the military, it's law enforcement. And that's where we are right now. They are domesticating an operation that has been overseas and they're bringing it home. They're not using the military, they're using law enforcement. Uh, by the way, my screen just went dark. You're good. I still see on screen. Well, you give me enough of your time, Barry, but where can people find any of your links, just your Twitter or anything else? You can find me on Twitter or you can go to standardsplushistoryacademy.com. I have uh, a lot of resources there, uh, my books and things of that nature, but standardsplushistory.com and Twitter. And I'm going to link those in the description, Barry. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.